I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. My guest is Mick Mounds, the founder of Kiva Systems, a mobile robotics company that automates the warehouse fulfillment process. Kiva robots deliver inventory shelves to stationary human operators who then pick and pack the product and send it off for shipping. Mick started Kiva Systems in 2003, and the company was acquired by Amazon for $775 million in spring 2012. Customers include Diapers.com and Zappos, both owned by Amazon, Saks Fifth Avenue, Staples, Toys R Us, and The Gap, among others. Prior to founding Kiva, Mick worked in high-tech product development at Motorola, Apple, and the online grocery company Webvan. Mick is a graduate of MIT and Harvard Business School. Welcome. Thank you. It's fun to be here. I want to start by understanding the traditional warehouse. Could you describe briefly the day in the life of a warehouse worker? Yeah, the traditional warehousing, at least what uh, I was experiencing in the late 90s, um, was characterized by a lot of conveyors and forklifts and other static stationary shelving devices. Classically, a pick worker would grab a tote or a cart or some uh, device and some RF picking device that might be mounted to their wrist, and they would follow the instructions and walk from location to location in the warehouse to find those items. And sometimes they pick an order at a time or multiple orders at a time, but they're going out to gather the inventory, bring it back to somebody else who's then going to do the pack out. And uh, when we started Kiva, uh, we turned that whole equation on its head and said, what if all of the inventory in the warehouse could walk and talk on its own and just come to you, the pick pick pack worker? A typical pick worker can walk five to 10 miles a day and spend, you know, 70% of their time walking around the warehouse. I've heard you say before that um, uh, regarding the experience of a worker, not only is this an unproductive way to fill orders, it's also an unfulfilling way to fill orders. Yeah, it can be a kind of a rough job, uh, and we're talking about direct labor in the factory setting that's probably being paid on the order of $10, $12, $14 an hour. And it's interesting for a while, but then it becomes pretty routine pretty quickly. Part of the unfulfilling part, at least, is that a lot of the technologies and existing processes don't allow you to do your job well. So you get to a location, and you're supposed to get a red T-shirt, and you're out of red T-shirts. And so then you end up spending all this extra time looking for where did they put the extra red T-shirts. And uh, and obviously, we tried to change that whole equation with our approach. With Kiva Systems, uh, instead of the workers going to get the inventory, the inventory comes to them. Can you describe that process briefly? Sure. So instead of walking out to a location to get the T-shirts, we send mobile robots that travel on the ground out to get underneath a mobile shelving pod. It's an inventory pod that contains lots of different items. We pick it up just an inch or two off the ground, and then we deliver, drive that that shelving unit all the way over to where the pick worker is standing. And then they present themselves in a serial fashion in front of the pick worker so that every six seconds they can reach out their hand and pick another item of inventory. It allows the pick worker access to every single item of the inventory without moving their feet. How fast do these robots move around the warehouse? What's it, the mile, mile per hour? It's interesting. It's super slow. What we did is model the robots after 
the uh, speed that humans would be walking, say, for example, in a grocery store, about three feet per second. And so when you see a bunch of them in the building, they're all kind of moving at a walking pace, uh, yet they're getting a lot of work done very quickly because the human operator experiences a continuous pick face in front of them. The warehouses look like a, a mini city on a grid system. It's like uh, traffic, like cars moving around. How, how much did maps and the idea of automobile traffic play into your vision of what the warehouses would look like? The way we approach it is less about um, like highway traffic and more about just a reservation-based system. So as they drive, they're reserving small stickers in this grid system. And as they get to the next sticker, they release the last sticker. Our software control system is probably more better described as an air traffic control system, which is deciding who gets to go when, where, and and why. Uh, And then that creates this fluid set of motion amongst all of the robots. Where does the name Kiva come from? It is a Hopi Indian word that means uh, meeting place of the ant people or loosely ant colony. And so we, we use the term Kiva because our original logo was an ant carrying a package. It's kind of like the ants, the ant colony at your picnic that carries off all of your food. Also, ants are complex organisms uh, who are, are very strong. I think an ant can carry multiple times its weight. True. I hadn't thought about the individual ant strength analogy until you pointed it out. But yeah, our robots weigh about 250 pounds and they carry a thousand pound payload around of shelving. But the real metaphor that that I like is at the systems level, a, an ant colony is a very robust organism and it's really hard to kill. Mm. <laughs> Once you get ants in your kitchen, really hard to get rid of them. So we are similar. Our approach to solving this warehouse um, inventory picking problem is to use use uh, hundreds and thousands, if not thousands of robots in a building, all with a little bit of information, but collectively very capable of getting the work done and very robust. One of the things that Kiva Systems do does is track the popularity of a product. So let's say it's Valentine's Day. Uh, there'll be more pink candies being procured or fulfilled uh, than uh, Christmas time. So the robots are able to, uh, the shelves are able to be moved to farther away from the human operators uh, than those products that are more popular. That's right. One of the side effects of making everything mobile in the warehouse is that you can now dynamically and adaptively tune the layout of the warehouse. And so as more chalky pink candy is being ordered, all of that stuff kind of moves to the front of the warehouse. But the day after Valentine's Day, as nobody's ordering that stuff, it starts to drift to the back of the warehouse and get out of the way. And traditional warehouses would have tackled that problem by bringing a crew of humans in over the weekend to reslot the warehouse and move all that stuff around. And in our system, it just happens automatically. I'd like to talk about the cost of the robots. Uh, a startup kit for, for these robots is, you know, one to two million dollars. And if you have a warehouse of, let's say, a thousand robots, that's, you know, close to 20 million dollars. And it takes you, you know, six months to plan and set up the grid system. How did you justify the cost to potential customers in the early days? There's a pretty well-known kind of trade-off, which we call the two-year CapEx versus OpEx trade-off. 
I'll gladly spend a million dollars if I'm going to save $500,000 a year for the next two years. Mm. And if you can hit that two-year CapEx, OpEx trade-off, the automation projects tend to get approved pretty quickly. And in our case, to bring this disruptive uh, solution to market, we had to do a lot of innovation around the business itself. We had to approach... The, uh, our potential clients with a brand new pricing model that took the risk out of the equation for them. So when they were thinking about converting from a conveyor-based system to a Kiva, we would we knew it would work, but they didn't. They weren't quite so comfortable. So we'd say, look, if you if we get all the way to the end and you still don't like it, you can send it back. You mentioned disruption. Kiva is a disruptive technology. It's not just a bunch of robots delivering products in a traditional warehouse. You really have changed the paradigm of the warehouse. What what other companies did you do you look to who have been equally disruptive in their own industries? There there's a lot Along the way, we used to think about who else has dealt with similar disruptive challenges when they grew their business, and companies like Southwest Airlines would come to mind. People always laugh about low-cost Southwest Airlines, but yet it's the only profitable airline over an extended 10 to 15-year period. And how do they do that? Well, they just take a very robust and simple approach. They use one aircraft, a 737, for all their flights. Uh, they originally had a open seating policy, so people really would hustle to get in and get their seats. And they took a very fun approach to, to flying, too. Another one we always uh, used to talk about was uh, FedEx. Today, you think about the ability to overnight a package um, from any almost anywhere in the world next day. And that capability didn't exist, you know, 20 or I guess it was about 30 years ago. Yeah. Uh, it was unheard of. We were talking about convincing customers to, to adopt Kiva, and your first customer was Staples. How did that happen? The introduction, so we were, we identified Staples as a likely consumer of the Kiva solution, and we had emailed into just about everybody we knew from every angle over there without much, without much success. Uh, but when we were out seeking um, venture funding, uh, the team at Bain Capital actually uh, was able to introduce us to Staples. Bain Capital was your investor, but they weren't among the early investors whom you approached. Uh, You got about 100 no's before you finally met them. What was the appetite among venture capitalists when you were presenting this idea? The... um yeah, first few years would have been 2002 and 2003. I was still living in Palo Alto in the Bay Area. And so naturally, I was uh, traveling Sand Hill Road, meeting with a lot of venture teams out there. And, uh, you know, it wasn't a great time for raising money. They were still licking their wounds from the dot-com crash of 2001. Um, and we were a hardware play. And so at this point, they were looking for the next um, software company or some internet-type play that could grow quickly on unlimited amount of capital. And so, uh, yes, to your point, we, we uh, had the door closed in our face quite a bit. And uh, they used to say things like, you're going to need $100 million to get this thing to cash flow break even, uh, and then some. So I became convinced, actually, in those early years that uh, maybe venture capital was not the right funding model for Kiva, this capital-intensive business. Uh, So I end up working my 
uh, network, friends of friends, to find some uh, investors that got it and that wanted to take a risk. I managed to meet up uh, with a, a gentleman named Sam Kinney, who was one of the co-founders of Free Markets, which was a 1999 very successful uh, internet startup. Anyway, I met up with him. Uh, he introduced me to additional uh, co-founders and early uh, employees of Free Markets, and we started to put together kind of a $1.6 million Series A round to get the company to do, do a proof of concept. How firm was your conviction that, that you thought this was viable and this would work, especially in the face of multiple no's? I knew that it could work, um, but you know, as a first-time entrepreneur, CEO, all that stuff, um, I probably didn't appreciate uh, all of the challenges that were that were going to be involved in building the company. But you have that kind of um, uh, that naivete that actually makes you think you can do it, which is useful, very useful, actually. So I want to talk some more about the early days of the company. You were sleeping on friends' couches, and what was your burn rate personally? Burn rate on on me physically or burn rate cash-wise, the checkbook, all of that? You tell me. Uh, So the reason I was sleeping on people's couches is because I was keeping the burn rate near zero. Um, I remember in that year, I think it was in 2003, something like 300 days on the road that year, 299 on other people's beds or couches, and one one night in a red roof inn because I just couldn't drive any further and had to pull over. And it said 29.99 for the night. What was your social life at the time with with such a nomadic uh, existence? I was single, uh, dating at the time, so I didn't have a lot that tied me down or, or restricted me from kind of taking this uh, leap with both feet. We talked before about Staples being uh, your first customer. How important was that in being a catalyst for other retailers to come on board? Yeah, so Staples is a very interesting story. Um, We had identified a list of about 25 customers that we just thought, if all of these customers are using Kiva, then we've arrived. And Staples was on that list. And we were pleasantly surprised at the conversation when they came by only kind of in the ensuing year did we put together the reasons why they acted so quickly. But they were in a hyper-competitive space, just office supplies. And it was them against Office Depot, against Office Max, against Corporate Express. All of these guys are effectively selling the same 3M yellow Post-it notes and red pens. And so how do you differentiate in that in that environment? Well, it's through your pick-pack-and-ship fulfillment uh, capability. And so... Staples saw our stuff and thought, geez, if this works, we probably ought to know about it. And wouldn't it be great if Office Depot didn't know about it? (laughs) And so in that competitive context, they move very quickly to try it. Um, And then we quickly uh, followed with Walgreens, um, later with Zappos and Gap and some others. And I think uh, there was a critical mass building. You could see some of the leading online retailers using our stuff. And so that became kind of a self-fulfilling thing where most people who wanted to solve this problem would come and talk to us because we had all of the key, a lot of the key accounts. There were other people uh, who started Kiva with you, including Pete Warman and Raffaello D'Andrea. How do you know them? So uh, Pete Warman is my roommate from MIT. He was teaching computer science and e- as it related to e-commerce. And he knew exactly how to make this thing work from a software standpoint. And uh, I met Raf uh, through another friend of ours, Mary Elaine Vandermeulen, who was sitting across the hall from him at Cornell as a professor. I showed him what we wanted to do with these robots. 
And this built on everything that he had been uh, doing in his academic career with controlling complex systems. He's a controls expert uh, that can make uh, these systems operate robustly. One example uh, of a robot that he built is a soccer robot. That's right. You'd put five autonomous robots on a, on a little mini soccer field against some other university, and the ten robots would go at it autonomously. And his RoboCup teams at Cornell were winning every year. And when I showed Raf what, what we were working on, it was almost like falling off a log compared to playing soccer. We had a controlled environment. We could put down a grid. Nobody can go in there. There's no opponent that you, you have to outguess. You just have to control these things. So he signed up pretty quickly. You mentioned that one of your co-founders was your roommate at MIT. You've had a, a, a couple of other friends join the company uh, and, and also family members. Your father uh, worked at the company. What was his role? That's right. So I would talk to my dad about every other weekend, and I could tell he was getting more and more interested and uh, getting kind of sucked into the process. And, I, and one day I just said, hey, why don't you just stop what you're doing and just move out, he was in Phoenix at the time, move out to Boston and work on this. It'd be much more fun. You can do it full time. Uh, I don't have to call you every Sunday. <laughs> so he uh, took me up on it and uh, came out, worked in our supply chain group using his logistics background. You have one sister who's a helicopter pilot for the military, um, but you have another, your older sister has joined Kiva. Uh, she was a part-time um, uh, assistant in our HR team uh, for a number of years. And my brother-in-law, her husband, had a PhD in robot path planning. Go figure. So he and my sister Cindy and family moved from the Chicago area to Boston. She was the sole person in our HR department almost up until like employee number 100, all part-time. I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Mick Mounts, founder of Kiva Systems, a mobile robotics fulfillment company. Customers include Crate and Barrel, Timberland, The Gap, and Staples. Kiva Systems was acquired by Amazon in spring 2012 for $775 million. Incidentally, in 2008, you were watching the Beijing Olympics, and you've, you've mentioned that the opening ceremony was in some way a parallel to what you were doing at Kiva. How is that? Right. So in 2008, my wife and I are watching the Beijing opening ceremonies on TV, and they show uh, 2,000 people on the stadium floor making art. And uh, I said to my wife, hey, that was the idea for Kiva. Just put lots and lots of people on the warehouse floor, and they can do some very interesting collaborative things. Uh, of course, we didn't end up using people. We used robots uh, to do it. Uh, but I was fascinated by the opening ceremonies there because they were able to make some incredible artwork, and I was told it was all done um, without computers, but just peer-to-peer -peer with them working it out amongst themselves and coordinating. I want to go back to when you hatched the idea for Kiva. You had been working at Webvan, which is the online grocery delivery company that uh, raised hundreds of millions of dollars of venture capital and went bankrupt, um, perhaps because they were too early uh, for their time and they didn't have this logistics framework baked into it. Could you describe um, how you came up with the idea briefly? Sure. I mean, uh, my experience at Webvan was the genesis uh, that's where I uh, was able to experience at least the problem firsthand. That company was taking online grocery orders, much like a, a Peapod or in, in New York City, a Fresh Direct. And what would happen is the cost of fulfilling the order, delivering the order, and, and having the customer support relationship, those total costs would completely overwhelm the margin on that grocery order. And so clearly, 
Uh, so the the re- part of the reason the company went out of business was it was losing money on every order. And my job at Webband was to think about next generation fulfillment solutions. The e- internet was new, e-commerce was new. There hadn't been much kind of clean thinking around what does it mean to get one green, you know, one green T-shirt, one tooth toothpaste, one can of soup in a in a tote, a box, or a bag. So this notion of each based picking, I felt was unsolved. And uh, you know, I racked my brain for a, a year over there trying to think about how to do this. The existing solutions just didn't didn't stack up. And about a year and a half later, uh, it was still bugging me. And that's how I, I when that's when I really got started on the problem. We talked about uh, Webvan's influence on on Kiva's development, uh, but you also worked at Apple uh, starting in 1996. You were at Apple for about three years, and uh, you you were helping to move technology onto their desktop platform. This is also when Steve Jobs returned to Apple. Similar to Apple, uh, at Kiva, you really control every step of the of, of the product chain, of the design, the aesthetic, the software, the robot operators, the stickers, everything from cradle to grave. And that's somewhat reflective of what Apple did. Can you explain that? For sure. That, that yeah. linkage. Uh, that's that's right. So we're bringing a very complex solution to market, and we're going to put this in a customer's warehouse. So it just has to work. And so we decided to take the same approach that Apple did when they would develop a technology like the original iPod, for example. The reason it was, in some sense, so successful is Apple not only made the iPod, but they were involved in the USB interface to the Mac. They made the logic board for the Mac. They made the operating system that ran on the logic board, and they made the iTunes software that connected to the iPod. So rather than having to think through and deal with all those technologies, the consumer was able to just listen to music. What are some of your memories of Steve Jobs? Like, are there any, you know, random stories that that come to mind from those days? You know, uh, you just, you learn a lot through osmosis when you see somebody like that. And I kind of had a front row seat for the turnaround. And when he got back in 97, the company was working on all kinds of different projects. And one of the things I remember was that meeting where he rolled out the new 2 by 2 We make desktops and portables, and we make consumer and professional. And if you're not in one of those four boxes, you can leave everything else because it's going to be sh- is going to be shuttered. And luckily, I was in the desktop <laughs> uh, professional box. Mm-hmm. And then he said in that same meeting, um, "So which one of these are we? We have this product. We have this product. We have. This, what are we missing? We're missing the consumer desktop." And so he had already developed the thesis and was working on. Uh, his iMac uh, vision. Uh, what I also remember about those days at Apple was everything became even more secret and super secret. Uh, and so I would, uh, you know, the guy in the, the product marketing manager in the office next to me would be working on the iMac and couldn't tell me anything about it. Whereas only, you know, a year earlier, we were all working on these projects together and sharing experiences. How did you feel about that that level of secrecy within the same company? It was different, but it was completely understood that, geez, if uh, in, in, uh, if your customer knows that another the next version of the product is coming out, they're not going to buy the current version. So it was understood why. Any other anecdotes, uh, impressions of him or? Well, 
when I was working there, I used to tell my friends in the Bay Area, it's very interesting because he's so smart and, and, and his, you know, his passion and vision for the industry is really compelling, but I think he succeeds despite himself. And that, you know, with just small changes to the way he treats people or leads, he could be even, even more effective. You founded Kiva Systems in 2003 and were acquired by Amazon in 2012. How did that acquisition happen? Did did they approach you? Uh, were, were they a customer of your a customer of yours to begin with? Amazon was not Amazon directly was not a customer of Kiva. In fact, that was the number one question that we would get from other clients or prospective investors was, "Hey, why isn't Amazon using this?" Um, but uh, in our sales efforts, we would make the kind of annual trip out to Seattle to try to convince Amazon that they ought to use uh, Akiva system in one of their warehouses for pick, pack, and ship. And in 2012, the conversation uh, got more interesting as they they said, yeah, they said, okay, but if we're going to do that, we'd like to own the whole company. Did you think that maybe they would try to build it themselves in-house? Uh, you know, that's a real, I mean, that's always a real possibility, but I wasn't too worried about that uh, because we'd been at it for, say, eight or nine years at that point, yeah. and we developed a ginormous portfolio of patents, and we've solved a lot of hard problems. So even patents aside, some of the things we figured out how to do are very hard to learn. And so given that technology challenge, we weren't too worried about other people copying it. At the time uh, Amazon acquired you, you had been fulfilling orders for Diapers.com and Zappos, uh, who were owned, owned by Amazon. So perhaps that helped. It did help. We think it helped. So for a moment there, we thought about changing our marketing tagline to say, buy Akiva, get bought by Amazon. Mm. Um, we didn't end up doing that because <laughs> then, of course, it happened to us. I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Mick Mounts, the founder of Kiva Systems, a mobile robotics company that automates the warehouse fulfillment process. I want to talk about your your childhood. Where did you grow up? So I was born in Frankfurt, Germany, uh, in a U.S. Army hospital. My folks were in the my dad was in the military, so we had that classic uh, army brat upbringing where we were moving every couple of years somewhere new. Uh, I think I had uh, nine different schools by the time uh, I'd finished high school or twelfth grade. What kind of child were you? What kind of kid were you? I guess the funny the funniest thing I can think about my childhood was. Uh, when I was an adult already in my 20s, I took the Myers-Briggs test, and it comes out ENTJ. What is no, that mean? ENTP. So ENTJ is this classic leader profile where uh, people who run companies, but I'm not that. I'm ENTP, which the, the tagline for that personality type was called one exciting challenge after another. And I was showing it to my folks, said this is what my, supposedly this is my personality, and they started reading it, and they burst out laughing at the paragraph where it said, as a child, the ENTP, when asked to take out the trash, will spend the next two days trying to invent a system for the trash to take out itself rather than just doing the chore. And so they're like, that's you. That's absolutely you. And along those lines, uh, you tried to create, when you were, what, 11 years old, an automated process for doing your homework rather than you doing it yourself? Yeah. My mom later, uh, when I was running Kiva, sent me some old little clippings from the you know the scrapbook kind of stuff that said, uh, it was an essay, what do you want to invent? And I wanted to invent a, a machine that would do all my homework. And I, f and I feel like that was actually what I ended up working on at Apple was my homework machine, the Mac. 
your parents were in the military. How were they as parents? Were, were they militaristic or? Um, quite uh, probably quite the opposite. They just gave us uh, a ton of support for whatever it was that we were interested in. So, you know, my my father and my mother were role models and, in, and influential, inspirational in, in different ways. So my dad was the kind of uh, hard work, work ethic, always had to be doing something productive. And then he also taught me sports, right? So he was a college football player at the University of Illinois, and I developed a love of sports by uh, hanging out with him. And then my mother had a scientific curiosity, so she would take me for example, into the laundry room at age seven and turn out the lights and say, watch this and open the the, the dryer drawer and, and dryer door and, and all the clothes would spark as she was pulling them out. Mm. And so there was a lot of little memories like that that contributed, I think, to both uh, my competitive kind of uh, my competitive nature through playing sports and, and working hard and then my scientific curiosity that my mother kind of instilled. You used to exercise uh, a lot before you started Kiva uh, and having kids. That's right. Now you have no time. You did yoga. You played baseball at MIT for four years. You ran triathlons. Yeah, it kind of goes away uh, <laughs> when you when you have a startup and you're doing 80 to 100 hours a week. But uh and, and, and um, so I was fortunate in that my early few years at Kiva, with my schedule, I could really get in great shape. And I was in great shape when I started the company. And, of course, now with three little ones at home, uh, my priority is to try to get some time with them in the morning and in the evening before they get to bed. I've been told that you, uh, that you, also, that you drink a lot of coffee. Just how much are we talking about? Well, so the coffee, uh, the caffeine is a uh, mental state stimulus for me. I actually did an experiment one year where I tried to go uh, a whole year without caffeine and without alcohol. And it turns out I ended up going a year and a half without alcohol. I didn't miss it, didn't need it. But the caffeine, for after four months, I could barely complete a sentence. And so I had to start drinking coffee again. Uh, so I'll have a couple of cups of coffee in the morning, kind of the perpetual cup, and then switch to maybe one or two Mountain Dews in the afternoon. Mountain Dew because... The caffeine. Mm. <laughs> And, and the sugar, I guess. By then, I need the sugar, too. And you like Lucky Charms cereal? Uh, yeah, there was a period there um, when we were getting the company going that I felt that not only Lucky Charms was a nutritious breakfast, but that it was having some impact on our ability to win new deals. Mm. <laughs> well, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks. It was a pleasure to be here. My guest has been Mick Mounts, the co-founder of Kiva. I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. Scratch.